afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? Welcome to Sense of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Rojack, and I'm here with Luke Smith. I hope you all had a nice and relaxing 4th of July weekend. Um, out here in Los Angeles, people were parading through the streets, hugging strangers, kissing babies, not in celebration of our nation's independence, but instead to celebrate USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten in 2024. Apparently nothing gets the juices flowing in Hollywood, quite like the potential matchup between UCLA and Rutgers in Piscataway during mid-November at, at 9 a.m. local time. Uh, so Luke and I are going to spend today's episode uh, predicting how the Big Ten standings will look at the end of the uh, 2024 season. Um, I'm kidding, obviously. We're going to discuss what this move means for the future of college football as a whole, as well as Notre Dame's position in it all, because I think for the first time, um, at least in our lifetimes, Notre Dame's status as an independent football team is in jeopardy, uh, for better or worse. We're also going to dive into last week's incredible recruiting stretch for Notre Dame as the Irish secured five verbal commitments from consensus four-star prospects in a six-day span. Before we're joined by Notre Dame's director of player development, Hunter Biven, on the back half of the show. Uh, Hunter came on to talk about his role on the staff and how he's been able to use his experience as a former player to help current players on the roster. Um, there's a few players who dealt with more during their time as a student-athlete than Hunter. He had three heart surgeries, and he honestly has a tremendous attitude about it all and is a really important figure on the staff now. So it's great to have him on and share some stories with us. But, Luke, uh, we've got to start with the news regarding USC and UCLA because it really does represent a seismic shift in the college football landscape. We've had a couple of days now to let it marinate. What was your initial reaction to the news, and has it changed in the time since? I think my initial reaction was, huh, that's interesting. Uh, that U.S. like, I think it was very hard for me to uh, not necessarily accept that they would go to the Big Ten. I, like, I understand the the whole money thing and everything, but just when you talk about USC in the Big Ten, it sounds very, very strange. Um, it, it was even stranger when they put out like their own announcement later that night uh, and showed the Big Ten logo. It just doesn't look natural at all. But um, regardless, it also, I think my initial reaction was it seemed like maybe things were moving very rapidly. And since that happened on Thursday, this is now Monday, um, there hasn't been anything that's happened since. Like There's been no official announcements. Now, granted, it was a holiday weekend, but it seemed like almost like this could have could have had the potential to have an immediate domino effect. Uh, and it still might be, you know, a rather soon one, but it seems like maybe things cooled off a little bit. I know there are some reports out there today that now the big 12 is targeting um, six PAC 12 schools. So that's, that's interesting. But I, I think my overall takeaway is that conferences have always, for lack of a, a better way to put it, 
been created to create these kind of arbitrary distinctions um, and, and, I don't know, identities that a lot of people kind of bond over. I don't really know why. I've never really understood the, the idea of conferences other than to bring in money uh, and kind of have a, a shared pool of money. So I, I think for me, this is maybe more so just uh, validation that I was right about conferences the whole time and that they're just kind of not really all that useful. Um, and I know we'll get into this more, especially as it appears that it might be inevitable that one, um, Notre Dame might join a conference, and two, there may just be two conferences. But um, I think this kind of helps to prove my point a lot that, like, why did we ever need these things? And, and the only answer to that is money. Uh, there's no actual point in having conferences. Yeah, I think the principle of it all was so that schools would be tied regionally and they could maintain traditional rivalries. All of that is good in theory, but the actual functionality of conferences was always money-driven and specifically by these television companies who are pretty complicit in it all. Uh, This move was definitely driven by Fox. Does Mm -hmm. that make me complicit? I think it does. I mean, it's, it's your current employer and your former (laughs) employer that are driving this move. There's some, there's some account out there. It's actually the one the John Wilner guy who originally sort of broke this news. I don't know if you've seen this. He's been tweeting this every day. Like, and he says he will continue this every day that this is driven by Fox and ESPN. Uh, he's like, it's, it's almost like he's like, uh, like a like a QAnon guy, like talking about how the election was stolen. Like that's like how adamant he is about this thing. It's kind of really out there. But he's like, I'm going to continue to tweet this every day until we have our two conferences. So I don't know, but uh, but yeah, I think you're complicit because it's your former and, and current employer that are driving this yeah. all. I think I am, and this move was definitely in response to the uh, initial domino that really led to this point last year around this exact same time when Oklahoma and Texas announced that they were leaving the Big 12 to go to the SEC. At the time, Big 12 is a Fox property. It's not their biggest one. That's the Big 10. But they do have rights to the Big 12, so then they lose that to the SEC and ultimately ESPN because now ESPN owns the SEC. So that was a hole that they had to fill. And getting USC and UCLA obviously helps fill that gap a little bit. I don't think it's quite the same, but it's close. You obviously get the, you know, another huge television mark in LA. And yeah, I mean, this is pretty much all driven by the conferences. Did you see that guy who was, I think he was the chancellor at LSU 10 years ago who called this? He said, eventually there's just going to be two mega conferences and they're going to be ESPN and Fox a decade ago. I did not see that. Um, that, that that's interesting. Apparently got laughed out of the room. Well, uh- you know, I mean, I guess, though, the whole Oklahoma-Texas thing, that was really caused, ironically enough, by kind of the ACC and the Pac-12's hesitance to expand the, the college football playoff. Uh, and kind of like, even though they probably could have benefited most from that, if you go back to last summer, which, and this is why I'm still somewhat hesitant to fully buy into this, although it does seem fairly inevitable that we're going to go to this two conference sort of, you know, duopoly over college football. Um, last last summer, it was kind of just taken by everybody in the national media that the, the college football playoff was going to expand. That did not happen. Um, they, they did <laughs> announce their intentions to, which usually intentions mean it's already done, but apparently that report was premature. It did, it and did it was in that not case. Done. Yeah, so that's why I'm somewhat hesitant. Uh, but basically the ACC – was one of the parties that kind of held that up, which 
pissed off Greg Sankey in the SEC, which is partially why they went and got Oklahoma and Texas. I know it pissed off Jack Swarbrick at the time, too, because he and Sankey had helped draft this thing. And now the ACC might end up just, you know, uh, not existing in, in a very, sh- very short order. So it's kind of ironic how, how things like that can work out sometimes. Was the news with Oklahoma and Texas, that came right at the same time as the playoff expansion, right? Where they were going to go to 12 teams. Six- it occurred several weeks to a month after that, I believe. Okay. And now you got Sankey saying like, hey, we're going to do an SEC only playoff, which at the time sounded ridiculous. But now as we get closer and closer to two mega conferences, I, I think – we kind of are headed that way. And that's where I think we look at the pros and cons. Like just at looking at it as a fan of college football, I think it's time to just put the idea of like conferences in the old way of college football, just it, put it to bed. Like they, are these even conferences anymore as, as much as they are just a group of national teams across the country who are just confined to this group? Because I think the way that we used to interpret conferences is different now, especially if we go to basically an AFC, NFC style with college football. And the one thing I think is, is like a pro is if if this if it does lead to this, we just have two conferences with say like they're talking like twenty to twenty four teams each one, potentially even more. Yeah. If if they keep expanding, let's say like Miami, Florida State, Clemson, they go to the SEC, and then the Big Ten gets Oregon, Washington, and, and then it's clear that the haves and the have nots of college football, the haves are dispersed between these two leagues in the Big Ten and the SEC. The way things have been trending with the transfer portal and NIL and the NCAA's complete lack of control over the whole thing, one potential positive, I think, is that if we do go to these two mega leagues, I think it's going to be a lot easier to govern and make rules regarding NIL and the transfer portal and get things more control in that sense. So I think in, in that way... In other words, the NCAA might cease to exist. Yeah, I, at least in terms yeah. of its of football. I really mm-hmm. do think that's where we're headed towards, like a football-only league, and the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be like look, like, look, you guys had your chance to sort of figure this out, make rules and stuff, but you just completely fumbled the bag. We are going to – we don't need you anymore. Like, we don't need 120 teams competing for the college football playoff because, let's be honest, it was never 120 teams competing for the college football playoff. It was always – Let's be honest, it, it wasn't really even 10, honestly. <laughs> if, we, if we really want to – really want to look at it closely like it was a very small pool that was competing for it and I think in one sense yeah it's going to be good that they could actually govern make rules and I think it'll be a lot easier to make up an expanded playoff when you have a smaller pool like in any community it's going to be a lot easier to make rules and stuff and get people to agree when the group is smaller like the bigger the pool the harder it is for everyone to agree on anything so in that aspect I think it's good but as a fan and just you know, there's some things I like the regional aspect of college football, like Pac-12 after dark. I think that's going to kind of go away. And some of the schools that are in these conferences that, that were in the Power Five who weren't competing for the top, I just I don't know how moves like this are going to encourage their fan base to to stay as involved and like care as much about the sport. But then you could counter that with well, then it becomes more national, and then it become it could become more popular. Compared to the pro league, so that's sort of the dilemma I'm dealing with. Just not talking about Notre Dame, just as a fan of college football. How do you feel about it going forward? You know, I I think unfortunately everything that's good ultimately comes to an end. Uh, This appears to be driven primarily by financials, which is how a lot of things seem to end and 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 begin. Uh, I think that when I look at it, though. 
Um, I mean, college football is always going to be there. I'm not really that worried about that. Um, It will take different forms, but frankly, it's already taken a different form than what it was like when we were growing up. I mean, we've already seen various iterations of conference realignment. Like you don't have Texas and Texas A&M playing each other anymore. Although I guess you will in the SEC. They haven't played in 10 years. Um, You know, like just like Kansas, Missouri, like that game's gone. Like think about all the rivalries that have been lost because of, uh, Kansas, Missouri was the- not at the top of my list. I can't believe you went with that. Well, some I of love- us recall. Some of us recall when that was a top three game in 2007. <laughs> yeah, that's true. God, I miss um, Mangino. You know. <laughs> but like more so, even for basketball, and I think that's, that's actually probably where my maybe bigger concern is uh, is for non-football related sports because I mean we spent the last two episodes talking about the college world series and like how awesome of an experience that is. I just, how the hell are you going to just rationally play a USC versus Rutgers baseball game on a Wednesday in, in Piscataway? Like, do you see that Rutgers? Um, and so USC is actually closer to Honduras than it is to Rutgers. <laughs> I did by like 200, that. by like yeah, 200 it's like a significant amount too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, but that's kind of what I worry about. Like, you know, you've heard, a lot of talk about Virginia and North Carolina potentially maybe joining the Big Ten if, if they did go to 20. And, like, then – so you're just going to tell me you're going to leave Duke out? Like, Duke and North Carolina not playing. Like, what's that going to do for college basketball? What, what's college basketball going to look like? And I, I know you kind of alluded to this idea of, um, you know, a football-only sort of thing, but I don't know how feasible that is either because that's what these other sports are supported by is football. So I I don't know what that's going to look like. And that's probably where my bigger concerns are just like, because I I really enjoy college basketball, college baseball. I I can't say I've watched it forever, but the last few years with Notre Dame being good, I have, it's a lot of fun. Um, And like, you know, women's basketball, uh, lacrosse, like all these sports are going to be just in a lot of flux. Like, I don't know what that's going to look like. So uh, I'm very interested to see what that'll look like and maybe a little bit concerned. I don't think I'm that concerned about college football because I think the way it's been going the last decade plus is you really did have like eight programs. And I think that that's probably, you know, the if you're in those two conferences, like you were already in the conversation anyway. So like it was going to be hard to break in, break that wall if you weren't already there. So like, I'm not really that shocked that that's the direction we're going, but that doesn't mean I have to like it, but I I don't think I'm that adamantly, you know, opposed to it either just because it seems sort of inevitable. Yeah, it does seem inevitable. And I think that I would be shocked if Duke and North Carolina don't make a move together because Oklahoma and Texas made the move together. USC and UCLA made the move together. I, I can't remember who it was. He was, uh, he, I think he he's a writer for the LA Times. He's on the Paul Feinbaum show, and Feinbaum just asked him point blank. So, what is the benefit to the Big Ten of having UCLA uh, in their conference? And there's like a five second dramatic pause, dead silence. Like, well, you know, the connection to USC is really like, and that was it. That was the only thing that they brought to the table. Where in the case of Duke and North Carolina, obviously both programs bring right. a lot. Um, so I would be shocked if they don't move together. But you're right. It's it's really hard to project how this is going to shake out because there are so many more things left to, so many more moves left to be made by all kinds of schools. Like I already mentioned Miami, Florida State, Clemson, like they could go to the SEC. Like this is all 
you know, speculation at this point, but a big character in all of this uh, is Notre Dame for obvious reasons. And now Notre Dame has a decision to make. They don't necessarily have to make it today or tomorrow, but just because Notre Dame has leverage today does not mean that they're always going to have leverage. And now Jack Swarbrick is faced with the decision of, does Notre Dame stay independent or do they join the Big Ten or the SEC, which is really just the Big Ten? Like, if Notre Dame joins the SEC, dude, um, I don't need. <laughs> what, what would you do? Like, what would that reaction be? I mean, that would be really cool in terms of, like, being, being, a, being able to go to different games. But like, It'd be awesome. That yeah. would kind of suck from a scheduling perspective. Like, I'm not delusional, although I, there are a lot of people out there that would tell you we'd do great. I'd, I'm sure we'd be all right, but yeah. like that, it, it that'd also, be a tough, tough run. Yeah, and good luck explaining that move to the people who care about Notre Dame who don't care about football. Oh, and do you think that, uh, you know, so-and-so on the home side box wants to align himself academically with Ole Miss or Arkansas? Yeah. No. That's no. not happening. Yeah, so we, <laughs> yeah. Can, we can throw that one out, but it's fun to ponder for a second there. So, yeah, so Jack Swarbrick and, honestly, Father Jenkins, they're going to eventually have to decide whether or not to move to the Big Ten. Now, we've talked about Notre Dame independence a lot in, in the past, and as we know, like people who really care about Notre Dame and they follow Notre Dame, they are smart enough to know that Notre Dame's independence actually costs them money. The NBC deal is not as much as what even the ACC television deal is, and certainly not as much as the Big Ten or the SEC. Now, with USC and UCLA in the fold, the Big Ten, who's also in the middle of their uh, next TV rights negotiations, that money's going to grow even more. And now Notre Dame is like, okay, how much does it cost to truly be independent? Like, is it worth it financially at that point? And at this point, it's certainly trending no. And and don't get me wrong, Notre Dame obviously is not hurting for money. But when we start talking hundreds of million dollars lost every year, like you, you got to start wondering, is this worth it at this point? And financially, that's one thing. To me, I think the bigger factor in all of this and the one thing that Notre Dame would would always be the number one factor in Notre Dame joining a conference is their access to a college football playoff. If we do go to two Super Leagues, those conferences are probably requiring at least, what, 10 conference games a year. They could break off and have their own separate playoff, and they could very easily tell Notre Dame at that point, if they were still independent, hey, you got to join if you want to access this playoff. And Notre Dame really wouldn't have a ton of ground to stand on at that point because it really is just two conferences playing against each other. So um, it's certainly trending that way. I know that I feel like you and I both would prefer that Notre Dame stay independent, but we also realize the writing on the wall here. So how do you feel about Notre Dame's position in it all? And and what do you think they will do going forward? So this is the first time outside of um, the pandemic year where they were really not an option, but to join the ACC full time for that year. This is the first time where it's actually like the idea of joining a conference makes sense for Notre Dame to me. Um, like I think when you look at what these media rights deals look like, um, it would be foolish not to investigate that and just like at least game it out. Like, what is this going to look like? How much money can we bring in here? But also more, um, in terms of their, how they value their independence, it's about playing a national schedule. And now that you have, uh, USC on the West coast and UCLA on the West coast, you have the Midwest, you have some schools out east. Um, you know, I'm actually running in a Big Ten uh, 10K for Rutgers. I'm a proud alum, um, <laughs> the honorary alum again this weekend. That's actually the funniest thing of this all is I thought about 
wow, how about if I ran this thing in two years and I could wear a Notre Dame shirt with a like a Big Ten logo on it? Now that will really come full circle. But the people of Rutgers would be depressed that you left them. Yeah, I, I honestly might stick with Rutgers. <laughs> At that point, yeah, I think you should continue to rock the Rutgers gear. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I digress. I, I, I think it, it makes sense. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, like you, I, you may have mentioned this earlier. Um, if this can get us out of playing Navy, that's great. Like I'm sick <laughs> no, of that. This is like, off air, but yes, the, it, it does seem like the best chance for that to happen. And, and just like that was somewhat in jest, but not really. Um, I don't know about you. I've gotten kind of tired of the ACC slate. Like it's just, if you're not playing Clemson or the one year that Miami happens to be good, those games are pretty boring. Like, think about it. What, the last five years, we've lost two ACC games, like one in the ACC championship. Yeah, we've all and, lost Clemson. And then Miami in 2017. Yeah, yeah like, that's pretty boring. Um, and not, not to say that I think we would, you know, automatically be just losing a bunch of games in the Big Ten if we joined it. Um, but... It's more interesting, like playing Penn State, playing Michigan State, playing Michigan. Um, I, I just, I don't know, like maybe that's just because I, I'm used to what we grew up playing against. But I think that schools are more like-minded and like, frankly, they're more competitive than the other schools in the ACC. And that's not even taking into account bringing in a USC, uh, potentially bringing in Oregon. like a Washington or an Oregon. Like it's just, it's a little bit more appealing um, just from a, just from an aesthetics perspective. So you know, while I would prefer that they're able to to keep their independence, and I I don't think they have to be rash about this, nor do I think they will. Um, I'm not completely opposed to it, and and I think the biggest reason for that, um, in addition to what I just said, is is kind of what you said earlier: is that this concept of a conference is not what we once thought of. Like conferences are like if it really goes in this direction, where you just have two mega conferences that are just national brands that's kind of what Notre Dame is right now. Anyways, now it would just be kind of a conglomeration of that. So I don't see that as a huge shift identity wise. Um, and maybe that's why, you know, I really don't have a problem with it if it does happen. So I guess that's where I'm kind of coming from. Um, now it'll obviously like if we go in the direction, two major conferences, that's going to change everything like scheduling, like, are we going to play that Alabama home and home? Are we going to play that Texas A&M home and home? I don't know. Um, it'll also change like playoff selection. And this is assuming, I mean, the thing should get expanded at some point, but are we going to be looking at three, four lost teams to get in the playoff? Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like if this is the direction we're going on. But, um, I think that, you know, while nobody really likes change, like I think change can be interesting. And like the idea of, of this is interesting to me, which is probably a bit surprising, but I kind of like this idea from a football's perspective, um, I have other concerns, but from a football perspective, I think it's interesting. And a lot of the things that we feared Notre Dame would lose if they were to, to join a conference, if they were to join the Big Ten in this capacity, I think Notre Dame would actually be able to maintain a lot of it. For example, the ability to play USC every year, you can maintain that rivalry. You have a national schedule still because you can play at USC, you can play at UCLA. Hell, you can play in Washington now in Seattle. Like That's... Um, a big market. And then, you know, on the East coast, you got Ruggers in New York and New Jersey. And from that aspect, you're like, okay, looking just at the schedule and hell, you're right. We talked about this once um, Notre Dame announced the East Tennessee state game. I think it was your biggest issue. Like Notre Dame schedule has been so watered down in years and, and this actually makes it worse. 
I, I just have no attachment to Notre Speaking Dame. Speaking of which, can I, uh, can I interrupt you really yeah, quickly? Um, just found out that I have a wedding the day of the Tennessee State game, which is awesome because I don't have to go to it now. <laughs> and, like, that's the only fall wedding I'll ever celebrate. Anyways, okay. go back to it. Oh, well, that's good. I'm happy for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I don't feel any attachment to Notre Dame, Georgia Tech. Hell, I, I feel more of a – like a little juice when Notre Dame plays Purdue, and I hate the Purdue game. <laughs> that that game probably means more to me than any yeah. ACC game that Notre Dame plays outside of Clemson, Miami, or Florida State, and even Florida State has been horrid in recent years. Yeah, so I'm just kind of at the point where, like, look at the, the schedule. If Notre Dame plays a Big Ten schedule, and we're seeing teams like Michigan, Michigan State, and USC and Oregon, like I would like that way more than what they're doing in the ACC. So from that angle, I like it, and. Yeah, it would be weird, and, and I think maybe I think maybe my least favorite part about all of it is if Notre Dame were to join a Big Ten, all of the idiots who don't understand Notre Dame's conference thing who be like who just tweet at everything Notre Dame does, like join a conference or they play the most watered down schedule every year because they're not in a conference, which is just blatantly false. All those all those idiots would get their like brief moment in the sun. We're like, yeah, like. I told you, like, Notre Dame joined a conference now. See, you're not that special. Like, really? Yeah. If they're not that special, then why is literally every single conference just would be so happy, like, literally begging Notre Dame to join them at this point? And, and honestly, yeah. like, the Big Ten really isn't in a hurry to add Oregon or Washington because they'd much rather have Notre Dame. And I just think that leverage is really strong right now. And it's crazy to think that literally a year ago, you and I did a podcast. We're like, yep, Notre Dame's independence is more secure than it's ever been because we got this expanded playoff, six at-large bids. Right. So all of this could change in um, you know months. But I think right now, if even if Notre Dame does join, I think that the brand is strong, the schedule would be stronger, and there's a lot of positives for Notre Dame. No, definitely. And um, I think you're right. Like there were so many tweets out there, like, because people were reporting, you know, Notre Dame might join a conference. Like, so you've been saying this for 20 years. Like they, or they've needed to do this for 20 years. Really? Because um, the last decade they've made a a college football playoff while not playing in a conference in a national championship game. Well, while not um, being in a conference. And then the one year they were in a conference, they made it the playoff again. I I think they made the right decision. Um, So like they never needed to do it. I don't get it. Um, the one thing I will say, if they join the Big Ten, I would be pretty insulted by being in the same conference as Iowa. Like, I just think they're a disgrace to the game of football. <laughs> um, I actually, one of the message board geniuses put out, like, a ridiculous post from a Notre Dame fan, like, basically saying that any conference needs to bend over backwards for us, which I hate some of our fan base, but that's besides <laughs> the point. Um, and some Iowa fan responds saying they're losing their leverage with every team that joins these conferences. Come on into the big 10 and we'll kick their ass during the season. So they don't have to be embarrassed in the playoff. And I, I had to respond. I said, you're saying this is a fucking Iowa fan. Like, did you watch the big 10 championship game? Your offense is truly insulting to the game of football. So um, <laughs> I am insulted by Iowa. Like I, I had a running bit at one point in college, like, I think 2015 when they went 12 and 0 and lost the Big Ten championship, but I would say like Iowa is so relevant that they could go undefeated as a Power Five team and miss the playoff. Like they're just that they're that that much of an affront to offensive football. They were number two in the country last year, right? Were they the worst number two team of all time? Yeah, they lost by 40 to Purdue. I will never ever forgive Iowa for having me 
like have to cheer for them in the Big Ten championship and actually like because it and affected that, oh, Notre Dame's oh, and we oh, had to oof. be Iowa fans and have to. Well, the game that. was over in about two minutes, yeah. so at least we got that out of the way. That was true, but I still was subjected to sixty minutes of Iowa football. I don't know if Kirk Ferentz knows that like Newt Rockney brought the pass to college football like a century yeah, ago. Yeah, did you? By the way, did you see that whole thing about what his buyout is? If they were to fire him today, uh, Ferentz? Yeah. I mean, he's got a top five contract in college football. It's got to be tens of millions. $48 million. I mean, the, as if we need any more proof that the money in college football is just obscene. That's why it's not yeah, going away. Yeah, and he continues to employ his oaf son as their offensive <laughs> coordinator. But yeah. All right, I think we're good on conference realignment. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some more news to shake out. But do you have anything more to add on it at the moment other than Iowa sucks and having to watch Notre Dame play, Iowa would suck? Yeah, that'd be tough. Same with Minnesota. But other than that, I think I'm, I'm pretty much up for it. Um, you know, I guess the, the one thing I'll say is that I do think that I, I can see a world where if – maybe these mega conferences don't form as quickly or there's still a, a, a path to access the playoff. Maybe Notre Dame does stay independent, but I think where that becomes, um, you know, not manageable is where you're getting boxed out from scheduling and you're getting boxed out from the playoff and, and that could happen. So, you know, there's probably a world where that could happen. And, and like you said, like what we were talking about less than a year from now about their independence, never having been more secure, who knows what I'm going to be saying in October of this year. Yeah. So, um, But this is just my read of it right now on July 5th. Let's move to recruiting. We kind of alluded to it. We kind of knew it was coming um, in our last episode with recruiting insider Mike Singer. Um, we saw five prospects who Notre Dame was looking at. They were going to announce their commitments in, in coming days, and then they, they got all of them, including four-star Charles Jagasa, not Jagusa. We got it right this time. Um, even though, let's let's put this out there right now. Mike laughed at Luke. I'm going to stick up for my boy here. Literally everyone else on the Notre Dame beat said Jagusa. So, Luke, your official statement? Yeah, I, I, I don't care what his last name is. I just <laughs> hope he's really good. Um, they also secured four-star cornerback Micah Bell um, and wide receiver Rico Flores, as well as four-star corner Christian Gray. The big thing here is, I mean, outside of Jagasaw, which is an offensive tackle, Notre Dame has recruited that position really well. Like, signing four-star wide receivers and cornerbacks has not been that common at Notre Dame over the past decade. So, really, really impressive, Ron. Probably a little bit orchestrated by the Notre Dame staff. But uh, what's your feel on it now that it's official? It's it's really, you know, tremendous. Like you alluded to there, probably orchestrated the spacing of these commitments because they really kind of came each day over this holiday weekend. Um, but it was also a really good response to Ohio State had that insane run of five-star receivers committing, and Texas picked up a couple five-stars in addition to Arch, and uh, this vaulted Notre Dame back into the top spot in the 2023 class. Um, this class right now has the highest over, overall point total since the 2013 class, which was the highest class of the Brian Kelly era. Uh, they have six top 100 commits, which is also matches the most for the Brian Kelly era. Interestingly enough, that happened during his first full cycle, so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, but um, it's it's also I think just huge because the positions in need picking up a receiver, um, picking up two cornerbacks, Christian Gray, the, the four star out of St. Louis, top seventy player, and I mean his former high school coach is Brian Kelly's defensive backs coach, Dallas Shu now, 
and he still chose the Irish over LSU. That's pretty significant. Um, maybe we're just not giving Marcus Freeman enough credit for how he's able to connect to these kids because just the the caliber of guys he's getting in right now, or at least committed, is is very impressive. Um, and, and I mean, Jagasaw is a higher rated prospect than Ronnie Stanley and Quentin Nelson. That's pretty legit. Um, I mean. I think on three has him as a number seven player overall, yeah. which is I think insane. he's higher than Keeley, um, or he's right, right he is, next to him. He is. On their side. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned the uh, the point t- total thing being the highest it's been since 2013. They're going to surpass that. Um, Jaden Greathouse about an hour ago announced that he's committing in, in 10 days. All signs seem to point like he's going to be Irish as well, another receiver out of, out of Austin. So things are looking good, um, and it's – very interesting. Um, I, I don't think I've ever really followed recruiting that in depth, but like it's it's hard not to notice what's going on right now. The general fan base is more locked into recruiting than they've ever been. Um, and it's started in recent years, like the criticism of Brian Kelly, well-deserved now, and, and his effort on the recruiting trail. Um, I think a lot of people had problems with it. And then he said that quote before the Iowa State game where he's like, yeah, we're actually going to try to get a top five class. That did not deliver. Then Marcus Freeman comes in, and then it looks like he's going to immediately deliver. Um, Notre Dame is number one in the rankings right now. I I don't know if that's going to last unless all of a sudden Dante Moore decides to bring Notre Dame back into the fold, but who knows what's going on right there. And, yeah, they they also landed a four-star wide receiver in the 2024 class, so uh, I'm really not going to think that far ahead. I mean, Cam Williams is not even a junior in high school yet, but it's still a position of need, and he's a really good player. And, And Maybe the best part of all is all his entire life. Like he was like a, he grew up a Michigan fan. His mom even said he thought he'd end up going to Michigan before the Irish invasion camp goes to that and then immediately flips to Notre Dame. It just shows just how powerful and influential this c- coaching staff is. Like when they get guys on campus, like they make a serious impression and it goes a long way. And then it really kind of makes you fantasize like, man, when, when Notre Dame does get guys like Richard Young on campus and Jason Moore, you're like, Wow, like they're on campus now. We've seen what Notre Dame can do when when they just get these guys on and guys who before, like Notre Dame was never even in the running for, and now they're at the top. Hell, Rico Flores has grills. <laughs> he announced his commitment with grills. When was the last time Notre Dame had a guy with grills on their team? The cool factor is up. <laughs> Greg Greg Bryant, maybe I don't know. It's been a while. It's been a while, but I think it's all just like really, really encouraging. Yeah, great house coming up. That would be the third receiver in this year's class, and then. Uh, has Hannafin, Ronan Hannafin, we talked about him a little bit. On our no, it sounds like that might be imminent as well, though. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. You brought up Cam Williams. He He's from Glenbard South, which is in a suburb not too far from me in Chicago. But I saw he was from Glen Ellen. And, and what you need to know is that Glenbard South, historically, has been awful at sports. And Glenbard West, on the other hand, has been very good. Like, they kind of been a football factory. Isn't their basketball program really good? That's Glenbrook, okay, which is yeah. where which is where John Shire went. Okay. But um, I just kind of when I saw he's from Glen Ellen, I just assumed he went to Glenbard West because they're the football factory. And then somebody tweeted out his highlight tape, and I was like, "This is the wrong tape. They're wearing blue. Like Glenbard West is green and black." But no, he actually does go to Glenbard South. So the more you know. Um, the the only other thing I'd like to share about this is Jagasaw, like. I, this has not been talked about enough. Um, so he goes to Alleman High School in Rock Island. And when I was in high school, they were really good. Like, they made multiple state championship games at the, like, probably middle level of Illinois high school football from a size perspective. I I was reading an article where 
They said his team went winless this past year and got outscored 426 to 14. So to be a top 10 prospect in the country when you're getting your ass kicked like that, like that's all, this guy might be really, really good because yeah. how bad would they have gotten blown out if he wasn't playing both ways? Like that's something to keep into perspective. I don't know. That is so. so I don't rare. know what happened there, but that is like because they were good when I was in school. Um, they're awful now, but it looks like they had some restructuring and lost a bunch of kids from school. But um, yeah, what division damn. are they in? Like, are they play? Are they just a team who's playing like really good teams that shouldn't be at that level? I mean, they're a Catholic school in like kind of outside of Rockford. Um, so I I don't know. Like I know that like they're they're probably like a mid tier size school like so I don't know like it's not a huge one but I think they probably used to have pretty good athletics programs I know they did um not the case anymore 426 to 14 is absurd especially when you have a guy of that caliber like anchoring yeah. the line yeah but I mean he's an offensive lineman and defensive lineman it's not like he's carrying the rock or anything but yeah just uh, just wanted to mention this really impressive stretch we kind of knew was coming and then it happened and, and Notre Dame's not done They've got several more guys that um, are likely to commit. You mentioned Great House. Hannafin is probably due to commit here pretty soon. And then maybe they could get Jane Osbury. He's literally from Baton Rouge, like LSU's backyard. And they could get him potentially. And then you got Jason Moore. This class is really, really strong as it is. And they could deliver here at the end. But um, that's all I got on recruiting. You want to add anything more? No, it does sound like Ohio State is making a push for Jason Moore. Um, actually, I saw Mike Singer switch his prediction to Ohio State today, so oh. that's surprising. Um, but um, who knows? It's still. I think that would still be somewhat of an upset, so we'll see what happens there. But, uh, yeah, I think the other names you mentioned, there's more good stuff on the way as far as recruiting goes. Now you just got to keep these guys until signing day. Yep, and that's a battle in and of itself. All right, let's talk to Hunter Biven. All right, we're joined now by former offensive lineman and current director of football player development at Notre Dame, Hunter Biven. Hunter, thanks for coming on, man. How have you been? I'm good. Thanks, guys, for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Long-time listener, Sandra Saturday. I really appreciate you guys having me on. That's great to hear. So I mentioned your job title, director of football player development. And just from that alone, I'm guessing you could give me a bunch of different answers as to what that job entails on any given day. So I'll just give you the floor to explain your role and what your responsibilities are on the staff. Yeah, it's um, you hit it right on the head. We could go on and on for hours about what player development is. Um, you ask me on 10 different days, you'll probably get 10 different answers, but um, the best way to, to understand the simple way to understand it is kind of like an assistant principal or a guidance counselor type role for our guys. Uh, but really what it boils down to is um, sort of helping and guide, uh, guiding our guys through their really intricate, complicated, um, interesting uh, journeys that they're on as Notre Dame football student athletes and all that entails from balancing, um, you know, their academic commitments uh, to their um, athletic commitments, to their social commitments, to their, or not social commitments, but their social lives, their personal lives. Um, you know, you're competing every day at the highest level, uh, essentially all day long in the classroom and on the field in the weight room. Um, so you have to be on at all times and you're under a microscope at all times. Um, so it, it, it causes, um, you know, some, some interesting uh, dynamics in these guys' lives and having somebody who's been there and done that um, and probably messed up just about everything you could mess up and experience the adversity that I did when I was a player. Uh, having somebody there that can kind of give some advice and, and, and help them get through those situations 
um, is, is, um, is really what my role boils down to. So one aspect of your job that's received a lot of recognition lately is your role in coordinating the Notre Dame Legacy Weekend, which took place during the weekend of, of the spring game. As I understand it, that was sort of yours and head coach Marcus Freeman's idea. And by all accounts, it was a great success. Um, I read somewhere close to 270 former players made it to campus for the event. Now that you've had some time to reflect and, and hear from people who were there, what were some of the biggest takeaways for you from that Legacy Weekend? Yeah, so um, I think and this kind of started in, in spring of 2020, right, as COVID hit. But um, I, I created what we call the Legacy Network. Um, and it's essentially our, our football former player network. And, and as Reggie Brooks, who was our longtime uh, alumni relations director, assistant AD for alumni relations, um, he was an All-American running back here in the 80s. He was moving on to a um, to a different role. So I, I, I stepped in and as a former player, really understood um, the importance of, of taking care of our, our former player population. Um, that's a, a big transition um, that a lot of people don't really acknowledge or don't really understand. And you, it would be impossible to understand it unless you've experienced it. But if you think about, you know, whether you just play at Notre Dame, don't go to the NFL or go to the NFL, um, and then your transition to life after that is, is a huge, huge identity shift. Um, if you think about it, like I played sports literally my entire life. And then the day of my last game in 2017, when we beat LSU in the Citrus Bowl, that was my last time playing sports. So you had this entity that took up literally my entire life. Like I played three sports my entire life, um, always had practice, always had something going on, was always competing at something. And then just one day it's, it's done and it's over. Um, and then you get, you know, the recognition that goes along with being a Notre Dame football player. And then it's all just over one day. Um, and it's, 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 it's a tough transition for a lot of guys to make. And there was a void there, um, you know, from my time as a player from 2013 to 17, um, already I've had, had nine players who I've played with that have died from, preventable causes um, whether it's suicide or drug overdose or something along those lines and it really hit me I was I was actually sitting at Lewis Nix's funeral and it hit me I was like man like we have a, a really um, neat and unique mechanism and platform uh, that we could connect these guys uh, and help them feel connected to something and still belong to a community and that's not to say like if we had that back then that something would have been different with the way these guys passed away but um, you know, who knows? You never know. And Mike Golick Jr. actually had a great, great tweet and said, you know, why these events are so important. Like you just get around each other and you know each other on a fundamental level. And you might be able to notice when something's off about something, whatever. Uh, but I can go on a tangent about our four, former player stuff. But yeah, so the Legacy Network and the Legacy Weekend was, was kind of my baby. And um, it was just kind of me handling it for, for a few years. And then when Coach Freeman got the job, um, our first conversation was like, Hey man, like, let's make this thing go. Like, let's, let's put the effort, let's put the resources into connecting our former players. Um, so he's just as passionate about it as I am. He's gone through that same transition um, and he understands the importance of it. And he's really uh, given, you know, my vision and, and my, you know, doing the legwork, he's given it the juice it needs to take off and given it the validity that it needs to take off and, um, he and I probably talk once or twice a week about what we're doing with our former players and how we can help keep them connected. So the legacy weekend was just the, 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 the kickoff to that. 
Uh, we had about 300 former players come back. We had a great weekend, and it was just truly uh, an incredible experience to see guys. Some of those guys like hadn't been back since they graduated, like guys who graduated in the 90s hadn't been back to Notre Dame, which seems crazy to me. Like we're at this place that so many people feel so deeply connected to, uh, and they've been deprived of that experience. So it was a great weekend. Great to see everybody back together across the generational spectrum and getting to know one another. And uh, it ended up being great. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. Do, do you have a, a favorite moment or, or story from that weekend you could share with us? It was the Friday night before our spring game. We um, we had just like a social in the Chivarelli Lounge, which is in, in the locker room. And it was right like as I was I was sort of organizing it all. And it was the end of the event. And we had an open bar and everything. And I was literally everybody who was at that weekend was packed into the Chivarelli Lounge. So it was kind of like, you know, like old times, like having all the boys back together. And I couldn't couldn't get them to leave. I was like, all right, we've got to, we, we've got to shut this down. Like, I don't like I've I've created this beast that is 300 former football players in an open bar and I'm trying to get them to leave and they won't like uh, but it, at that moment I just kind of stopped and I looked at Olivia Mitchell who is trying to help me if you don't know Olivia she's about five one uh, 100 pounds on a good day she was a cheerleader at Notre Dame she's our director of operations uh, not that she was gonna help me bounce these dudes out of there or anything yeah. but uh, it was just cool we were just like whatever like let it go like these guys are having a blast just being together and um, enjoying the moment and reliving their college experiences um, and it just that realization and looking around and it was just all former players. There was literally no one else in the room, just former football players, all having a great time enjoying each other's um, company and experience. And it was, it was a pretty cool realization. Yeah. It sounded like a great success by everyone involved. So big props to you for doing that. And I think that sort of relates to the current players, because I know that they were involved too in, in meeting a lot of these guys. And you mentioned the Notre Dame network. We hear about the Notre Dame alumni network all the time. It's like the biggest selling point of the university and for good reason. And I think with that, that's been a big proponent of Notre Dame's approach to name image and likeness. You know, Marcus Freeman said it before. Um, we've heard him talk about it at different speaking events where he's basically said, like, it's an important thing for sure, but it's not the most important thing. Like, if you're recruiting someone to go to Notre Dame and the first thing they bring up is NIL, they're probably not going to be suited for Notre Dame. That's not to say that Notre Dame, you know, doesn't have a, a strong approach to it. And I know you can't share all the details with us, but what can you share with us about Notre Dame's approach to name, image, and likeness? Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, you know, as a, as a former student athlete, I think it was long overdue. Um, you know, allowing students to, to monetize their name, image, and likeness. Uh, so I think, I think it's, it's generally a good thing. Um, you know, I, I knew guys that couldn't start their own company or couldn't advertise their own company because they were a student athlete. And like that kind of stuff I, I thought was a little silly. Um, I think we are a little bit in the wild, wild west right, right now in college football and, and uh, there's some tightening up to do. Um, but I've actually um, we, we've made a decision as, as a staff to try to try to keep me separated from name, image and likeness so that we can still have somebody who's totally devoted to um, the foundation of why you're at Notre Dame. Right. Academics, playing football, building relationships with one another. Um, Dave Poloquin has actually is our director of player personnel. He's actually taken the reins on a lot of our NIL stuff. Um, but I try to stay completely separate from that. So our guys know like when Biv's calling me or when Biv calls me to his office or when he's coming to talk, it's about 
you know, the stuff, the substantive things of why we're here. Um, so, so I've tried to stay away from it as much as I can. Um, but I think we're headed in the right direction. I think we've got some really cool initiatives with the fund and everything else uh, that's going on. And, and ultimately, you know, if you go to Notre Dame to do what you said you were going to and what you anticipate and you perform on the field, the NIL and the money and everything else will, will take care of itself. Now, another one of your initiatives we'd love to hear more about is the the gold standard, gold being an acronym for growth, opportunity, and life development. I remember hearing about this a few years ago via the, the social media campaign, but can you explain how you sort of came up with that idea and the opportunities it provides for the players? Yeah, so I um, when I first got hired back, one of the charges that, that Ron Paulus, who I interned for when he was our director of player development, um, and it is now our associate AD. One of the, the challenges he came up or asked me to, to try to address was how do we make, you know, what we do a ton with player development off the field, things that guys are involved with. We do a ton. Like, how do we make this more marketable? How do we make, how do we bring attention to all the cool things our, our players are doing in their lives? Uh, so he kind of charged me with coming up with a brand, a name, uh, something that's applicable to what we're doing. So I came up. Uh, you know, gold is, is obviously a layup for Notre Dame. It's, it's everything at Notre Dame, the, the Golden Dome, Golden Helmets, everything like that. Uh, and then I just came up with that acronym because uh, that really explained what we're doing, right? Growth opportunities and life development. That's essentially what player development is and what the activities that we do uh, sort of encompass. Uh, now, <laughs> that being said, we're, we're uh, uh, Coach Freeman kind of came in and uh, hijacked my name. Uh, and put an EN on the end, a golden standard. So we're, we're the, the, the player development uh, uh, naming and theming kind of took a backseat to, to what the head coach wanted. Uh, so we're currently actually looking for another theme and brand for our player development things. Uh, but that, that, that was it. And um, our player development program, you know, it, it, it encompasses everything from uh, career development to community service, leadership and accountability. Uh, our speakers, our summer speaker series, we call it the Gold Talks. Um, it's a week long program. We have people, you know, speakers come in and talk to the team and everything like that. Um, so all those things that our guys are doing and getting involved with off the field kind of is encompassed by that. The program that, that, the, the unnamed program. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, if anyone has any good ideas for a name, we'll, we'll have them send it to you. Let me know. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about your playing career. Um, as I understand it, you grew up a Notre Dame fan, right? And when you're in high school, you were a top 100 recruit by every major recruiting service. So you're getting looks at from a lot of the top programs. But what was that experience like when you started to realize playing for Notre Dame wasn't just a childhood dream anymore and it was actually a possibility? Yeah, I grew up loving Notre Dame. Uh, we didn't we didn't have much growing up, so I uh, didn't have cable. Um, so we, but we had the opportunity to watch Notre Dame on NBC uh, every Saturday. So got to be. Uh, the the only believe it or not the only Notre Dame fan probably in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, in, in SEC in SEC country, uh, but grew up loving Notre Dame, and I didn't really know why or understand it until I got to Notre Dame, and then you know once I I started getting offers everywhere and and everything like that, I narrowed it to five schools. Uh, it was Notre Dame, Ohio State, Georgia, Auburn, and Wisconsin, and I was going to visit all five. I told myself I'm not going to just commit and go to Notre Dame because I'm a fan. Like I want to see everywhere here, you know, find the best opportunity. Um, lined up all five visits, went to Notre Dame first, committed on the spot, and <laughs> been, been, been here ever since. Uh, 
but it's just when you know, you know. And and I took a visit and met Coach Eastan. For Coach Eastan had just been hired. Notre Dame didn't didn't offer me until Coach Eastan got here. Uh, but I met Coach Eastan, watched him in action in a spring practice, and I was just like, "This is where I want to go. This is I don't need to go visit anywhere else." And it's just, you know, I could go on and on about the spirit of Notre Dame and the feeling that you hear about everybody who talks about Notre Dame, but but it's very real. And somebody who didn't had no anticipation, no connection to Notre Dame before when you step on campus, you become a believer. Um, and I felt it. And I was, I was hooked from the second I got there. You went through quite a lot during your time as a player due to circumstances, pretty much out of your control, had three heart surgeries and, and obviously anything that severe is going to impact your availability on the field, probably could have transferred elsewhere and gotten more playing time, but, but you finished your career at Notre Dame and, and even returned for a fifth year. Why was that? Yeah, I, um, you know, as I kind of went through my career and, and you know, had solved the adversity, I, I knew um, that this is where I wanted to be. And I knew I made some really um, unbelievable friendships and relationships uh, while I was there. I met my wife there. Uh, we just got married. We're at our anniversary is actually tomorrow. Uh, met my right. wife. Thanks. I appreciate it. She was a St. Mary's girl. I met her and we started dating our sophomore year. Um, some of my best friends in the world, uh, Mike McGlinchey, Durham Smythe, Jesse Bon Jovi, Jacob Matuska. Um, those are, you know, my, my guys, like, and I met them there and they were all there for that fifth year. And, um, I knew I, I didn't have an opportunity to play in the NFL. Um, but Notre Dame had, had become home for me. Uh, my mom was originally from Tennessee and, and my dad passed away when I was in middle school. So when my brother and I both went to college, she moved back to Tennessee. Um, so, Kentucky wasn't really home anymore. Like Notre Dame was home. Um, and so I just wanted to stay there and, and, and I knew the NFL wasn't, wasn't an option. And it was actually all the way up until uh, graduation in 2000, literally sitting at graduation, we listened to a speech by Father Greg Boyle that changed my life forever. Um, and it, it was um, life-changing, but, but hit that speech um, made me realize what I wanted to do. And I went to Ron Paulus, who was our director of player development at the time. And it said, you know, I've been through a lot. I've probably messed up everything or seen and, and done everything you can experience as a Notre Dame football student athlete. Like, I think I can help these guys. Like what, what job can I do to do that every single day? It's like, well, that's funny. That's actually exactly what I do. So, um, he gave me the opportunity to intern for him right after my fifth year. And I knew that going in. Um, and that was something I was really excited about. So all those things combined kind of contributed to, to why I wanted to stay. And, um, you know, I knew I could go and play somewhere my fifth year, but um, the, the value that I would have gained uh, by going somewhere with the, for, for a fifth year and playing paled in comparison to the value that staying at Notre Dame for a fifth year has given me in my life uh, post-Notre Dame. Uh, from my relationships to my wife to my job, um, everything Notre Dame's given me literally everything that I have and that's because I stayed for a fifth year so <laughs> you touched on it a little bit there on what led you to to your current role but but I'm curious you know how are you able to to leverage your experiences at Notre Dame and everything you went through to, to help out the current players on the roster yeah you know I think it just gives it a validity right anytime I, I go and whether I'm getting on a guy for something he didn't do or or talking a guy through a, a tough situation I think you know somebody who's Notre Dame's different and the way that we do things is different and call that pompous or arrogant, if you will. But 
It's true. Um, and I think that would be really hard to hear from somebody who hadn't experienced it um, and, and be like, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about because he doesn't. Like if you haven't experienced it, you don't 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 know what you're talking about. So I think just that having been there and done that and being young, you know, 27, five years out now, um, I was recently in, in those guys chairs. Um, I think both of those things and, you know, the experiences and, and going through all that I have and everything that we just talked about. Um, all that just kind of gives it like, okay, this guy like has been there and done that. Like it gives me the, the, um, the juice that I need, I guess, um, to, to get through and for them to listen to me. So after you graduated, uh, I read somewhere that you, you worked at a finance job in Chicago for a few months until October. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did. So at what point was it during like an 8 a.m. sales call or maybe it was like an HR presentation where you're like, fuck this, I'm out. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it, 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 uh, I, I worked at Tegas in Chicago, Mike and Tom Elnick are rock stars. And I, it was a startup, uh, FinTech company actually. Um, and they, uh, do, um, research for, for investors and hedge funds and everything. And they actually, uh, they're a great, great company, unbelievable company, but I was actually one of their first six employees. Uh, they hit me up on LinkedIn, wow. uh, asked if I wanted to interview, and I did. And I I, I loved what I was doing. And those, they're two twins that went to Brown. Uh, tra- they, they ran track at Brown and started this company in their grandpa's basement in, in, in San Francisco and moved to Chicago to because it was just cheaper to run a company there. Uh, so I went, interviewed with those guys and lo- like loved them right off the bat. Like, I was like, this is where I want to work. And I loved what I was doing. I loved the company, uh, thought it was a great idea. What they do is they, they do research and they, I don't know if this is what you guys are looking for. I can go off on a tangent here, but, uh, <laughs> and they've actually like kind of blown up as a company. They have like 500 employees now. So, uh, I think if I would have stayed there wow. now, that would have had yeah. stock. And so I kind of missed the <laughs> yeah. boat on that one. Uh, but just, just, just being one of the first six employees and now seeing where they are is, is really cool. And, but I loved what I was doing. Uh, and it was actually really, really hard for me to leave uh, because I loved the people that I worked with. I loved the company. I thought it had a lot of potential. Obviously, it did. Uh, but, you know, being in athletics and being in football and being at Notre Dame was, was what I wanted to do. It was my passion. It was, uh, you know, where I wanted to be. And so when, I had, when Ron Paulus got promoted and that job came open, um, you know, I, I had to, I had to go back. So, um, that was kind of my decision. I, I didn't, but they, I wasn't in a sales yeah. call. There wasn't one moment. <laughs> I actually I like went to those guys and they had to essentially tell me to, to go. They were like, we want you to go. I was like, uh, cause I didn't want to leave. And I met with them. Like yeah. when I first went to interview, I was like, Hey, I'm going to interview for this. And they knew that's what I wanted to do. And then it was like a month later, essentially they're like, dude, go like, this is what you want to do. Like, if anything ever happens, like you'll always have an offer, job offer here, um, but go, go live your dream. So it was really cool. That's awesome. Um, so whenever a head coach leaves a program, there's a domino effect that impacts everyone who works in the program. So I'm curious, once the news broke that Brian Kelly was going to take the job at LSU, what was your reaction? And what were those couple of days like for you before Marcus Freeman was hired to replace him? Yeah, it was, um, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> The first I heard about it uh, was was on Twitter. Um, a guy that I played for all five years. He gave me my first job. 
Um, he was, you know, a pretty easy coach to work for. I, I have nothing bad to say about Brian Kelly. I think he was, you know, a, a great coach, a great CEO type coach. Um, let his coaches coach. He treated us great as players. Um, but I think it was just time for him to go. You know, I think he had been here for long enough and, and uh, played the same song and dance and, and done all he could do at, at, at Notre Dame and just and it was, it was time for a change. Um, so, you know, you've got to, it, it, it's, it's weird because Notre Dame is not a, not a place that you leave and go to another school. Like you retire, get fired or, or die in a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so that, that was a weird, like kind of dynamic, yeah. um, especially, you know, you're a top, top, top five team in the country. You're going to play in a New Year's six bowl game and your head coach leaves. So that, that, that was a weird thing, but. You know, I, I, I think I get it. I think I understand his thought process with it. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're totally fine there. Uh, but then the, the, the week leading up to Coach Freeman being hired, you, you, you kind of knew it was going to happen. It was like just all the buzz, all the excitement. Um, you know, I've gotten to know – I got to know Coach Freeman the whole year before, and you, like, knew, like, okay, this guy's going to be a head coach. Like, he's so polished. He's so good at what he does. Uh, this guy is, is going to be at the top soon. So it just made a lot of sense. And, and, you know, we needed uh, that energy and that, that spark um, that he provides. And it, it just made too much sense for it not to work. And then when he got the job, obviously the rest is history and everybody was juiced up and um, just the culture that he brings and instills and, and the way that he's so open and collaborative, um, you know, he comes and just sits in my office probably every day and he's the head football coach like you can go in and talk to him um uh, about whatever like there's no you don't have to be scared going in to talk to the head coach as a staff member or intimidated or anything like that like he actually actively tells you not to do that um so but 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 he's he's just a great great human being doing a great job so far and um it's awesome coach room is awesome yeah, so you already kind of alluded to it. Like, there's certainly been a buzz and excitement around Notre Dame ever since Marcus Freeman was hired. And and like you said, like even though Brian Kelly left, and despite what some fans think of him, he left the program in, in a really good place. But that being said, new coach, new culture. From your perspective, what have been the biggest changes you've seen, uh, you know, other than maybe Marcus being a little bit more approachable, like inside the Goog and the way things are run since Freeman was hired? Yeah, I think it's just kind of a younger vibe. Not that, you know, Coach Kelly was super old or anything, but just like kind of, um, you know, it's brought the program to 2022. Um, you know, everybody's a little more relaxed. Uh, there's music bumping in the team meetings before everybody walks in. Um, everybody just kind of feels a little more relaxed, I guess. Um, that's the biggest takeaway. And there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's the Patriot way where everybody's walking on eggshells and, that's that's one way to get it done, and then there's the the, the other way. And and uh, I don't I don't think we've really formed our identity as a program just yet. Um, we haven't gone through a full season, so we'll get there. Um, but just kind of the the new exciting culture has been has been the biggest shift for me. You mentioned earlier uh, that Washington coach Harry Heastan, coach of practice, when when you were being recruited, really kind of sold you on your on your decision to commit to Notre Dame. So I'm curious, what's it been like having him back on staff? It's been incredible. Uh, coach Easton and I are, are, are very close. Um, he, I, he was my position coach all five years. I probably spent more time with that man than anyone else uh, while, I, while I was here. Uh, and he's intense, no doubt. But he, the way that he um, 
simplifies the game and makes it so back to basics um, is, is incredible. And it sticks out. And, and I, I picked up on that from day one is like, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about and knows exactly how to coach it. Um, and he does an incredible job. He's an unbelievable leader of men. Uh, he's an unbelievable life teacher. Uh, I learned more from him in those five years than I had from anyone else in my entire life. And that's saying something going to one of the top academic institutions in the world. Uh, but he taught me more in those five years than I ever did in a classroom uh, or, or before then. And he's just an incredible football coach and cares about the men in that room more than anything. He doesn't want to be a head coach. He doesn't want to be an offensive coordinator. He wants to be uh, the offensive line coach at Notre Dame. Um, and that's what he is. And, and all that he embodies, I think, is, is contributes to winning. It contributes to uh, an unbelievable offensive line culture. Um, and I can't say enough good things about Coach Harry East. And he's, um, he, he changed my life and has made me into the man that I am today. And um, where I am is, is directly correlated to the lessons that I learned uh, in that offensive line meeting room. Well, so now that you're both on the staff, have you had the opportunity to boss him around yet or no? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. I think, I think he, he kind of uses me as his vent room now. Uh, he comes in and shuts the door and we, 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 we can let loose and talk, which is, is, is great. Uh, it's, it, it was a little, not weird at first, but it was just, it was kind of cool to experience like the, the relationship dynamic shift uh, from being a player to now being colleagues, uh, being, you know, a player coach to, to colleagues. It, it was an interesting shift, um, but it's been really cool. And it's kind of like, you know, once you grow up, like your dad, like you're younger and your dad's always hard on you and he's, you know, whatever. And then you get older and you can like finally crack a beer with dad. Like <laughs> that's, that's a little yeah. bit what it feels like. But um, I think he sees me as someone that understands his expectations and understands his working style and the way that he coaches and everything. And not a lot of people do. Um, so I think he confides in me and, and can trust me. And it's, it's a pretty cool working relationship. So what does uh, Harry think about the new culture? I'm trying to picture him and like, you just said it got a lot more younger. I wouldn't really yeah. consider Harry as young. How does he like it? It's gotta be an adjustment. Yeah, he's the he's definitely the wise man uh, in, in staff meetings. It's like sitting around like, everybody, yeah, everybody's under the age of 30, 36, except for him. Um, but, you know, Coach Freeman kind of gets this rap of being this like young, hip players coach. But he, he's a hard ass. Like he, his dad was a military guy, career military guy. So like he's young and relates and has a lot of energy. But there's a reason that he looks like a Greek god sculpture the way that it does like. <laughs> He's probably the most disciplined person I know, and and he expects nothing short of that. Uh, and when there's issues, you know, Coach Freeman is is very upfront, and there's no questions asked. You fix the issue, or you know, pay the consequences, and and that's very much like Harry too. So I think they connect uh, in that way, and I think Coach Eastan appreciates that in the way that Coach Freeman runs it that way. Um, so it's it's been good. I think Harry's adjusted well. I was interested to see. You know, knowing you know, knowing Coach Eastan, I called him Harry a minute ago. I, I shouldn't have done that, Coach Eastan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can assure you, he's not listening. I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Coach Eastan, uh, he, he's adjusted well, and I was interested to see how he would do that. He's done a really good job. All right, we have just a few more rapid fire questions here before we let you go. Uh, the first one, let me preface this, okay? We had yeah. Mike McGlinchey on a couple times. He's already told us this story, so we're not putting you on the spot here. It's already out there. 
Who won the fight between you and Mike? Uh, it was a draw. It was was a draw. Mike, Mike, uh, Mike is a a firm believer in the Irish saying, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. We, (laughs) we, uh, it it was just a mess and it took John, big John Montellus to, to pull us, pull us apart. Uh, but he put me in a headlock and took me to the ground and it was just kind of a lot of sloppiness trying to to, (laughs) to wrestle on the floor. Uh, and then I took a couple swings at him before we, we, we got up and that was, that was kind of it. But, um, yeah, like he said, I listened to him tell the story from that moment on, you know, we've been best friends. So that's exactly, you guys figured it out. Yeah. We just had to, we were, we were both, you know, big dogs, freshman year coming out of high school at Notre Dame. We kind of, it's like uh, two dogs, I, I don't know, two like Rams or something trying to, yeah. to, to, <laughs> to prove their superiority. Yeah. <laughs> and then we figured it out. So, yeah. That's funny. All right. Uh, what's the hardest class you took in Notre Dame? Uh, stats. I, I was a business major for one semester. It took stats. And like, <laughs> I'm no longer a business major. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going. I'm going to arts and letters. No, but I, I thought I originally thought I wanted to go to law school, so okay. uh, I got into political science. And actually, loved it. Okay, you were at Notre Dame. Well, actually, I, I shouldn't say that. You've been in South Bend for a really long time. As a student, uh, do you have a favorite night out? Um, as a student, I, I think my favorite night out in South Bend ever was after our wedding. Uh, we had our reception in yeah, the state. Makes sense. And we rented out CJ's pub, uh, went there after, and that was probably my favorite night out. As a student, though, I don't know that one. Uh, I, we had so many unbelievable times, and, like, they were all great. And it, I think I actually liked the pregame more than, than the night out. Like, the boys okay. all there, the energy's there, the anticipation of the night, rather than actually being in it. I think those are probably my, my, my more favorite times. Um, I was a, a pregame all-star, I think I would, I would consider myself. Um, but I don't know if I can nail it down to one as a student, but favorite night ever, ever was after our wedding. It was great. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And now uh, to close the recurring question, we ask all Notre Dame alums that come on this podcast, what's the weirdest thing you ever saw at club fever or, or more broadly on a night out in South Bend? Yeah. So I actually came up to this as, as we were talking, uh, we walked in after a night, I can't remember if we were at CJ's or fever. It might've been fever walk into, uh, Vesuvio's, which for everybody that, that didn't experience Vesuvio's, it was this little, little pizza place that had no business being open right next door to, yeah. to yeah. All, the, all the bars and everything. Uh, no furniture in, in the restaurant. It's literally just a desk and it's like, elbow to elbow in there like packed but one night we walk in and i see deshaun kaiser leading a a a, a two-hand touch football game in vesuvios playing oh yeah with the shoe football i think yeah. I, I think i was there that night yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, i know yeah. what you're talking about yeah we were just like I, I, i'll never forget walking in there like deshaun what are you doing what are you doing man um uh, and he's just, you know having a great time with, with the boys he was with pudge healy and and um and and all those guys and um cam Bryan, all those guys the flood great great group of guys but that was probably the weirdest thing uh that i can say on record. that's probably the weirdest thing i've i've seen in the night out well i know cam's cam's a listener too so he'll appreciate that shout out great love, love all all-star notre dame guy cam Bryan, one of my favorite people at notre dame I like how you said that you could share on here, which is kind of the response we usually get. But 
Yeah. Um, Hunter, thank you so much for the time, man. This has been great. We appreciate it. Enjoy the holiday weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, fellas. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Um, We'll be back in a couple weeks as we get closer and closer to fall camp. In the meantime, you can stay updated on all of our content by giving us a follow at Sons of Sat Irish on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Talk to you soon.